Joyce Tapley, as a CEO of a multi-million dollar healthcare center, is a proven thought leader on matters of public health. We created this podcast because it's time for a real discussion about the state of healthcare in our nation. Welcome to a new episode of Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley. Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Tapley, and today we are going to chat about medical homes and the benefits of each patient and family member selecting a medical home. Now, today we have a special guest. He is a legend in his own time. He's been around quite some time, and he's got a lot of experience. Our guest today is Dr. Barry S. Lackman. He is a physician, a pediatrician, and he also holds a master's in public health. Now, I've known him for quite some time, for well over 20 years, and I think we hit it off pretty well when we realized that we both went to University of Washington in Seattle, so we're Huskies. This is a man who has been on a journey as a pediatrician, as a faculty member at various universities, as well as he's currently the president and CEO of Lackman Community Development and Housing Services. So welcome to the show, Dr. Lackman. Thank you. I have an article that I want us to talk about a little bit, but I think that I want to wait until later in another segment. What I'd like to do is have you talk a little bit about medical homes. Why is it so important for people, particularly children, since you're working with children and their parents, to establish a medical home? And what is a medical home? A medical home is a continuous source of care with um, a provider that the parent and the child can trust. And the building up of that trust is one of the most important things about that relationship. It's a very personalized relationship that deals with the health of the person being served, be it a child or an adult. And um, with the populations that I've spent most part of my career, it's important for everybody because you don't have to repeat your history all over again. The person knows your history. And if they're good at it, they get to know you. And that's, you believe people that you have relationships with. That's how we all make decisions, no matter how rational we think we are. We still make decisions based on who we trust. And that particularly applies to people who aren't, academically oriented with the way they learn. They really learn based on the influences. I was once asked when I was in, um, um, I, when I was in, uh, in uh, Baltimore about why, at, and had my faculty appointment at Hopkins about why I felt that I was successful with families that didn't co- cooperate or collaborate with other providers. And I said, because I love my patients more than they love themselves. Mm. And that's really the key. I mean, I don't know if it's possible. Um, I, I'll give you an example of what I learned from Hugh Armstrong. I have a mother in the room with a child, and the mother says to me, Dr. Lackman, you know more about my child than I do. To which I replied, no, I didn't say thank you. I said, that's impossible. You live with your child 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I see your child for 15 minutes every three months. There's no way I can know as much as you do about your child. However, I know the science better than you do. So we're a great team. 
You know about your child, and I know about the science. Just think all the good we can do for your child with that partnership. What have I done? I've empowered the parent. I've built trust with the parent. And um, I, I've, you know, and that's, that is the kinds of relationships that make things go, and that's part of a successful, that's what makes a successful medical home. The other thing about the new world of that is, is that care is becoming a team process. Uh, it used to be that it was all the, you know, Marcus Welby, my doctor. Not anymore. You really need the team of people to help you because they have the skills that you don't have. Sometimes they have experiences which are closer to your patients that you have and can help you learn that. Sometimes they know things or have different points of view that help you do that. And so we're now seeing the emergence of that team, and that's all part of that patient-centered medical home. That is excellent. And what I think sounds the best out of all of this is you're focusing on the trust that has to be gained and earned from the parent and the child. We've spoken over the last um, several minutes about medical homes, the importance of those, and people having a person they can trust. What are some of the things and some of the changes that can be made at a legislative level as well as a local level that will produce better clinical outcomes for individuals and families, including children, with all of what's going on? What are some of those changes that can be made? Well, I think that the this um, my pet no-no is uh, prohibiting mask mandates. I think that's bad science and bad care. Um, there is something to be said for the fact that not every community or school system needs mask mandates. So a lot of that is dependent on what you're seeing. And um, what we should be doing, rather than passing anti-mask mandates, is using the learning power of the data that we have to figure out what are suitable criteria for allowing mask mandates. So kind of turning it on its ear and saying under these circumstances you ought to be doing mask mandates and under these circumstances you really don't need to do it. And so that, that would be one change that, that I would see. I think also, one of the things we've learned from what we've seen with COVID has been that the um, disparities and inequities in healthcare delivery are playing out for COVID as well. And universal, a true universal healthcare system is the best way of curing those inequities. Um, we've been very reluctant, unfortunately, in Texas to do that. Um, we did have some success in the last in the last session of the legislature. We, um, uh, uh, Mary Dale Peterson, the uh, president of Driscoll Children's, and I convinced Texas Medical Association, and the hospital association, and the health plans, all of the providers, to support the idea of expanding uh, postpartum coverage for pregnant women from six weeks to six months. Mm -hmm. Six, six months is not adequate. We were hoping for a year, but we got six months. We really need two to three years of continuous coverage because um, that's the average length between pregnancies in Texas. 
is two and a half is about two and a half years. If we had that, why is that important? Well, you know, we've had this big brouhaha here about the um, the death rates uh, in women during the first year after they deliver. That's driven by the lack of coverage. Look at the data that came out of that um, of that commission. It said that the leading causes of death were diabetes, high blood pressure, and drug overdose. So how does only having six weeks of coverage affect that? That woman comes back two and a half years, who has one of those problems, comes back two and a half years later with untreated hypertension, untreated diabetes, and maybe if she survived untreated drug abuse, produces a baby that's heroin addicted, produces or opiate addicted, produces a child that has problems in the knee, in the knee and goes winds up going to NICU. All of that costs us a lot more money yes. than it needs to, and it leads to bad outcomes, and for some of those children, lifelong effects. Yes. We need continuous coverage. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. I really want you to spend a little bit of time talking about your journey and how you went from being a pediatrician to owning your own business. You have done a lot, you've been a lot of places, and you've made a great impact locally, by state, as well as nationally. Could you just talk a little bit about your journey? Well, thank you. You know, it's interesting. I think it's, for me, I talk about it being the journey from being a sheltered suburban kid to being concerned about communities and community health. And um, uh, that started uh, when I was in med school. Uh, when my wife and I went to a talk uh, by a woman by the name of Consuela Harper, and Connie Harper was talking about um, the development in those days it was very difficult for people of color to get into plumbing, carpentry, electronics, because it was all done by um, apprenticeships. And since the apprenticeships were all given to relatives, those relatives were not often people of color. Uh, if you want to think about today's language, we talk all the time about um, a structural racism. Mm -hmm. This is a great example of how structural racism works. You can't get the apprenticeship no matter how qualified you are or how interested you are because you're fa you don't have the right family member. Uh, at any rate, uh, uh, after the talk, um, my wife was talking to Connie about the development of skilled trades, and she looked at me and said, and what do you do? And I said, I'm a medical student. Little did I know that it was going to lead to this 50-year-plus journey. And I got, uh, went to two friends of mine who were, I knew were involved with the community in North Philadelphia, where I was in medical school, and asked them to help me develop an elective to go to Alabama. And they instead responded, they'd only help me if I helped them with what they were doing in the community. Mm -hmm. And that was the start. So um, I got involved in the National uh, Student Medical Association at the time. I was the chairperson of their community health committee for two years. And um, I went, uh, I was going to go to Alabama. I got very involved with uh, the community with people in the community. I started working with kids in the street gangs, and uh, which was fun because they liked to play basketball, and I loved to play basketball at the time. And um, uh, and I, I gained a different appreciation. I saw amazing amounts of talent that uh, was not being used in ways that 
most of us would consider constructive, but there was talent there, and that was not my, that wasn't my stereotype. And so I had to lay aside all the stereotypes. Um, and um, uh, a couple of interesting things happened. Uh, one was that I was at a committee meeting for the student committee, and uh, there was another student there, Steve Smith, and Steve and I had never met, but we started talking about how I was going to Alabama. And he said, well, what about the need for doctors in the inner city? And I agreed with him that he was right. And together we cooked up this idea that there should be uh, an opportunity for people who wanted to uh, work uh, like the Peace Corps, uh, only for doctors and nurses in here in the United States. Well, that's called the National Health Service Corps. And it celebrated the 50th its 50th anniversary as a federal program uh, on December 31st of 2020. And according to their website, it serves 27 million people a year. So these two med students, it just shows what you can do if you have a good idea and people believe in it. Uh, it's, it celebrated its 50th anniversary. Um, and, and I got involved in some political things. The police chief at that time in Philadelphia was a guy by the name of Frank Rizzo. And uh, uh, Rizzo was an interesting character. He tried to get us thrown out of medical school for organizing a demonstration, wow. said some things that you can't repeat on the air about uh, the right, the constitutional right to free speech. <clears throat> uh, but um, we didn't, we survived that. And I went off to Rochester, New York to do my residency. I was lucky enough to be an absolutely wonderful, uh, first of all, we're gonna talk today about medical homes and the guy who invented the term medical home was a guy by the name of Evan Charney who happened to be in Rochester when I was there and was a big influence on me. Um, Evan later, when I went to Baltimore, was also in Baltimore, and so we got the chance to work together again. But um, also in my internship group was my good friend David Satcher, Bill Clinton's Surgeon General, and David and I have been friends now for 50 years that really arose out of some of the things we did around community health in Rochester. There, a lot of my activities where we had a significant Hispanic population, and we managed to convince the hospital to add interpreter services that were desperately needed. That's fantastic. From there, I went on to Seattle, and I did my master's in public health, and I kind of lucked into a program. I wanted to do a fellowship in adolescent medicine, and through a bunch of accidental circumstances, that got given away by the, by the department in Seattle. And instead, they offered me this joint fellowship in public health and pediatrics that turned out to be much better than the adolescent fellowship would have. I got board certified in both preventive medicine and pediatrics, and I got the master's in public health. And the lessons I learned in that were valuable. Um, I also spent, um, before I left Rochester, I talked with my mentor, Bob Haggerty, who is the chairman of the department, and I said to him, I've got this, going into this fellowship where I have all sorts of freedom, what do I do with all that freedom? And he said, well, you're, you have it came here with a reputation. I said, yeah, I was a troublemaker. He said, no, no, not that one. You like to work <laughs> with difficult families. Um, he said that 
I had good instincts, but I didn't have any academic background and the science of how you worked with difficult families and suggested to me that I spend some time looking at that in the fellowship. So I arranged to do that and I worked with a behavioral psychologist, a, a guy by the name of Hugh Armstrong, and we spent a year, every, we would meet uh, once a month and he would give me readings and I would come back and we looked at what's now called adherence and what was the science at the time behind it. So now you've got this tremendous evidence on social determinants of health that's sweeping through healthcare and the realization that adherence and how you influence people is important. Hugh and I read that stuff and I was, it really profoundly influenced the way I practiced. Uh, I was always looking for opportunities to use what I had learned for, with Hugh. Anyway, so went from there. I had a career in academic medicine for seven years in Milwaukee. Um, went from there on to Baltimore, Maryland, where I worked for uh, a federally qualified health center, Baltimore Medical System. Uh, while I was there, I secured the funding and started their school-based health care programs and their uh, programs in the Highland Town community and uh, they now have 15 school-based sites. So that became a, a major influence and springing from my interest in working with adolescents. Um, I left BMSI in 92 and spent a number of years as a consultant to the federally funded health centers. I got tired of being on the road all the time. I refer to that part of my career as it's Tuesday, it must be Tennessee. Um, and um, I, I had done some managed care and Medicaid managed care was coming along. Uh, I had done some managed care when I was at the community health center and that made me unusual because I had one foot in both of those. I had done some managed care and I had done a lot of care for underserved populations. So I was a startup medical director in Connecticut of Community Health Choice in Rochester, back in Rochester for a year working on a product, uh, always provider owned, and then uh, went back to Baltimore to do a turnaround on um, one of the, on the only provider owned HMO, which was also the minor, only minority owned one. And, um, Looking after that, I found uh, by accident this position in Dallas, and I spent 19 years as the medical director for Parkland Hospitals, uh, Parkland Community Health Plan, um, and did a bunch of stuff there too that we'll probably talk about later. I, I think we will. Right now, we're going to take a short break, but we'll return after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley. Stay with us. My name is Kaya, and I'm almost a teenager. I have a real problem. My daddy and my grandfather love pie. For my daddy, it's apple. For my poppy, it's anything lemon. But they won't bring me any pie. I don't think that's fair. They always go to Judy Pie on Main Street in Grapevine, where Miss Judy and her bakers make 20 different kinds of pies and cinnamon rolls on the weekend. But I don't get any. They tell me I can have pie when I'm a teenager, like pie is only for grown-ups or something. Can someone please call my daddy and my poppy and tell them I need pie? In the meantime, you can go to JudyPie.com, or if you're in Grapevine, Texas, visit Judy Pie on Main Street. And if my daddy or my poppy are there, tell them that Kaya wants a piece of pie.
Inspire Art Dallas uses advocacy, fundraising, and public events to encourage the flourishing of the City of Dallas public art program and to enrich public art experiences for residents and visitors to the City of Dallas. I'm Kay Kalos, Public Art Program Manager for the City of Dallas Office of Arts and Culture. Dallas County, at 2.3 million residents, is the second most populous county in Texas. And like many large counties, it has its share of healthcare disparities and poor outcomes. What we know about healthcare is that you can't improve outcomes for people unless you know their healthcare journey. Our show, Hashtag Dallas County Health Stories, talks openly to real people about their personal journeys. The series, created and produced by Lindell Singleton, is available on YouTube. Here is an excerpt from one of the stories. I had a hysterectomy in 2019, December 2019. And when I had the surgery did, January the 1st, I ended up going back to the hospital because I had blood clots. I couldn't stop coughing and choking. I had blood clots running up and down in my body. And um, I went to so many doctors to try to figure out what was going on for two years. I came here, um, I'm gonna say March, I got here in March and uh, I seen Dr. Marshall and I explained to her everything that was going on and she, pin she pinpointed everything that I was going through. She found out what was going on, what was causing, the, causing me to have that and everything and I, I call her my angel. When I come see her now, she's my angel. Visit Dallas County Health Stories on YouTube to watch an episode. At Foremost, we are changing healthcare outcomes for all of North Texas. Patients first, health and wellness foremost. Look for us at foremostfhc.org, on Facebook, or hashtag HealthyDallasForemost. And we're back. You're listening to Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley. Now, back to the podcast. This is great information. And as a black woman who has three daughters, who um, we spent a lot of time, my husband and I spent a lot of time trying to teach them about their bodies, because we had this book when we were growing up, Our Body, Ourselves. And so we teach, we t go through that with the, with the girls. It's been a challenge for them as adults now to find a provider that they can trust. So it's nice to know that there are still old school providers who really have the bedside manner. And we're also starting to see a lot of the newer providers who haven't been around a long time developing that, that bedside manner. So I think that's very important to hear that that still exists. I, I want to go move to other forms of medical homes, such as what you mentioned a little earlier, federally qualified health centers. Now, I've been reading data for quite some time, and there are approximately almost 13,000 healthcare sites that are federally funded that serve as medical homes throughout the United States. So there are a lot of places where people can go if they have insurance or if they don't have insurance. Um, what, what do you think can be a, an even bigger impact by health centers in the medical home concept and, and helping people to really access care, including during this pandemic and beyond? 
you know, the community health centers date back to the, the, the 60s and the war on poverty. The fact that they have persisted for almost 60 years is a pretty remarkable and have grown under every political administration yes. uh, that there was, regardless of political ideology, says a lot about the value of the movement. And the studies which have been done show that the outcomes are better, that a good community health center offers. And, and from the beginning, the care, remember I talked about team-based, yes. was team-based and still is. And, um, and that gives away, and it, it's really truly promotes health equity because you don't ask, you ask what your insurance is, but it doesn't govern whether you get care. And you're provided care based on your need, not based on uh, your race, your ethnic group, your sexual orientation, or your immigration status. Uh, and so the health centers really have a, a major role. Um, what the health centers have not necessarily um, uh, been uniformly successful in is becoming a medical home for um, the entire population. Um, a lot, uh, you know, the, the typical health, community health center, and structurally we've tried to make sure that the underserved populations have access in rural areas, in the urban areas. It's really only a handful of health centers, unfortunately, that have been successful at serving the entire population in their area. And I think that's a challenge, realizing that this is a better model and it needs to be more generalized. It's my view. And I understand veterans can attend and go to those as well now. Yes. So they don't have to go to a VA. So that increases access for more people. Well, you know, Dr. Lackman, I, I've known you. I know you as Barry. Um, I have a high level of respect for you as Dr. Lackman. I've learned a few more things from you, as I always do. And I really appreciate you being on our show. I, I just wanted to close uh, with a couple of remarks. One, that I always say this, and it's, I think it's just because I have children. Children are our future. And right now, with COVID hitting them as hard as it is, I am hoping that more people will understand the importance of protecting themselves and others so that our children are not affected in the magnitude that's happening right now. The more we teach them about healthy living, the more they can contribute to the world. And my girls, my young ladies, they have a medical home, and so do I. But I hope that those who don't have a medical home will find one. There are plenty out there, and if it's someone that they trust, I hope that they could stay with them because that is the relationship they need to continue to have in order for them to have a healthy life. And I know that parents want to live a long time to see their kids grow up, but we all have a responsibility in taking care of ourselves and protecting ourselves and our children. And with that, I appreciate the time that you have spent with me talking about medical homes, talking about your journey. You're a legend and you still have a lot more to go with your, with your, uh, your business. I appreciate your sharing uh, information about COVID and about the importance of, of living and, and how we should live and, and make, make better choices. So thank you, Dr. Lackman, and I really appreciate your time. And that concludes another installment of Healthcare Chat. 
For all upcoming and previous episodes, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit the subscribe button and you will always be notified when a new podcast is published. Until next time, thank you again for listening to Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley.